This is Popular Front, a podcast focused on the niche details of modern warfare and underreported conflict with me, Jake Hanrahan. Today we're speaking to Ilya Ponomarenko. He is a reporter from Ukraine. He's a defense reporter working for the Kiev Post. Um, he's constantly back and forth to the front lines in East Ukraine. Today he's going to be telling us about the so-called longest ceasefire. Basically, the current ceasefire in Ukraine in which around 40 Ukraine servicemen have been killed in the space of a year, so not much of a ceasefire. Many killed on the other side as well. Uh, Ilya's going to explain to us how it's all developing there. If you like what we're doing, please support us at patreon.com slash popularfront. So recently there's been um, a, f- a flare-up of clashes um, on, the, on the front line in the east. Obviously, there have been deaths on both sides. What's going on? Maybe just explain to us what's happening this time around. You know, what's happening is that the usual, very usual... Uh, uh, running of of this endless war, you know, this is what it look have haven't looked like in uh, in years. Nothing special, you know. Donbas, the war zone of Donbas since maybe 2015 is the place where time stands still. You mm-hmm. know, this is what it looks like. You know, the World War One in miniature, in like a small version of it. It's just two lines standing, two armies standing. No one's moving. Uh, forward, no one's moving back. So, in this cat and mouse, this uh, this fighting, endless fighting, resultless fighting goes on and on and on and on with no results at all. No, it's not about maneuvers. It's not about uh, you know trying to kick each other out from certain location. This is how it goes. You know, both sides they compete for certain locations, certain spots. Um, in the no man's land between the lines. So for sniper spots, for potential observation points, uh, for whatever makes you feel in advantage uh, over the enemy. And uh, both sides, uh, especially when it comes to Ukrainian side, they need to do uh, to continue with this cat and mouse game of small squads. Uh, because if you're, not, if you're not doing this, if you're not taking up like... Um, uh, dominant terrains or uh, convenient observation points in no man's land, you are to suffer. So, and obviously you don't want this. So this goes on and on and on. And this warfare, this logic of static warfare, it has become long ago like a self-sustaining process. So it can last forever, absolutely forever, without any prospects of any end in sight. So, what looks like uh, 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 an escalation in fighting is just uh, you know the very sporadic, very usual splashes of fighting here and there. Um, you know the small fighting of small squads, three, four people. The fighting of um, of uh, recon units, uh, sniper warfare is what takes a lot of lives. So it goes on and on and on and on. You know, recently, what what needs to be said is that recently, it's like three or four days ago, we saw we kind of marked the first anniversary of this longest ceasefire that was um, promoted by President Zelensky. It started on uh, July 27th last year, so it lasted one year, and uh, over this last year of um, 
of this longest ceasefire, we lost uh, 45 soldiers killed in action. That's the officially recognized, confirmed uh, combat-related death toll. So, drive. 45 soldiers killed in one year. Yes, that's that's we're talking about um, confirmed combat-related casualties. And apart from that, we have a lot of casualties from uh, landmines, uh, from um, war zone fires. Uh, so, um, not not directly combat-related, but. If we talk, if we include probably non-combat related casualties, we'd have more than 50 soldiers killed, and also more than uh, 100, 150 uh, injured in action. So that's the price of this ceasefire, so-called ceasefire. It doesn't sound like a ceasefire to me. Oh so, yes, and, and upon that, this latest ceasefire, as we call it, the longest ceasefire, ironically. Uh, unless my memory fails me, this is the 22nd on 23rd attempt to impose a sort of ceasefire in Donbass. So, you know, it was a, a bit of success in the year 2020, uh, when by the end of the year, between uh, late July and uh, the end of the year, we lost only four soldiers killed, mostly by snipers. But starting from uh, January, February, you know, it all returned to the same, same uh, pace again. Uh, same static warfare, claiming nearly a dozen soldiers, Ukrainian soldiers on Ukrainian side uh, every month. So we end up um, by the second half, we now run on the second half of the year, so we end up uh, having at, at least 45 fatalities. So this is how it looks like in Donbass. It's endless cat and mouse game, nothing changes, you know, time stops. Every single time I get deployed to the war front with soldiers, I basically have nothing to write about except for, you know, the atmosphere of uh, routine, of war routine and, you know, the soldier life, because nothing principal happens there, no major operations, it's just uh, static, very scheduled, very um, routine life of, uh, of endless war, just, just as simple as that. So this is uh, this is why in many ways you know Western media sleeps. Uh, it pays so little attention to this war because nothing happens here, and this you know this is where the time stands still at all. This is a terrible feeling you know to see. Yeah, I mean I understand what you mean. It seems like you know nothing is happening. Obviously, there's no ground is being taken. There's no ground is being lost. However, lives are being lost, you know, young men are dying out there still. Um, what, what are the soldiers' reactions when you're out there on the front talking to them? What do they think of all this? Uh, what soldiers feel after these seven years of war, it's one of the greatest mysteries to me. Because, you know, after all these seven years, most of which uh, they passed on in this static warfare without any uh, clear prospects inside. And, you know, Ukrainian lines, Ukrainian troops... Uh, they feel so confident about their job. So I would expect in such warfare that in, you know, to demoralize troops, uh, this endless stand and standoff, uh, I would expect it to get demoralized quickly and uh, to decompose I mean, in terms of uh, fighting power, but they feel okay. This is one of the greatest mysteries to me. They feel okay, they still stand, they know they, they have to stand. Uh, they have to stay strong, they have to, to fulfill their duties, and they do. Uh, year after year, many people serve for uh, 
for many years, for five years, six years, often uh, they do not get back to the rear of the fighting units, so they simply switch their fighting units so they could stay at the front line and could go on fighting uh, and serve the combat duties. So they feel absolutely okay. They do the job. They uh, day after day they serve the four-hour duties. Um, they feel absolutely okay about this. They do not. Uh, they um, they are not afraid of this uh, lack of any perspective, any victory, or even any defeat. So they simply do their job in a good way. And this is not what I would have expected in a war like this because of so many reasons. We have in history we have so many examples of uh, armies simply uh, rotting from inside because of this standoffs and lacks of perspective and lacks, lacks of all hope but this is not what happens to Ukrainian military somehow I don't know why it's a, it's a weird situation though like for them because they're not fighting for victory as such I mean I know obviously they have to be there to defend the land but they're just kind of clocking in you know what I mean it's almost like a nine to five but it's a war, but with no end in sight, it's it's just so unusual. You know what I mean? Yes. And what's uh, what's upon that is that um, since we have this weird phony ceasefire, they have a lot of restrictions, formal restrictions uh, posed upon them. It's like uh, in many many cases they have to be responsible for opening fire in return for returning fire. So in many instances, you know local commanders on the ground, they have to take liberty and uh, uh, order their people to return fire. So it's always a pressure from military bureaucrats because they have to explain um, or they have to you know, make a decision whether to return or not to return fire uh, because we're having ceasefire. Uh, and upon that, you know, Defense Ministry, they recently introduced this, uh, this uh, policy of encouraging troops not to return fire, not to take liberty in uh, in action when the enemy does something, you know, and not everyone is really ha happy about this. So in many cases, local commanders on the ground they have to uh, they have to go against uh, certain regulations and uh, impose their own uh, uh, rules of engagement. So yes, and this whole pressure and his pressing environment, I'm really surprised. I see it time after time I get deployed to the front line, how stiff they are, how, how committed they are. I think uh, if I were them, I would give up on this mess of this lack of respect to their lives, um, but they still protect the land. And what's bad for them is that they are being like professional good soldiers and normally deployed with Real good um, combat uh, combat formations is that they are not allowed to perform uh, like major operations. So mm -hmm. what they have to do is to simply stand and wait for commands if something happens. And when when, when there's obviously I think in the last week um, I was reading one of your articles about uh, recently I think there have been three Ukraine soldiers killed and then more on the other side as well. Um, how how are these clashes happening? Because no one's trying to take ground, right? Like, how do they actually happen? What's what's the dynamic on the ground when these clashes break out? Well, it's normally it's the case when, for instance, I get deployed to the most dangerous frontline sections. So uh, in May, I was near Horlivka, which was uh, probably the hottest ground. And, you know, what happens is that uh, before sunrise, um, there can be some shooting. 
um, and also after dark, in the dark, in the night. So everybody wakes up and uh, some skirmishes start. In daylight, no one cares, no one's fighting, almost never. So soldiers, they, uh, they do not even wear their uh, vests or helmets. Mm. So day is not the time for fighting, but when the darkness comes, especially when it comes to uh, locations where, where the enemy lines are pretty close to each other or they stuck in, like, uh, in uh, close quarters. So yes, mostly they, they fight in, uh, in the night. But then again, it, what, what happens in the night is this attempts to, um, to gain dominant grounds or uh, put what they, what, what they call the eyes. You know the observation points, like small observation points, so that you could see what the enemy is doing. So this is what mostly happened in, in the night uh, on both sides. So this is how it, how it looks like. The uh, after dark comes and uh, the showdown starts. In the day, for instance, uh, in the daylight, uh, what happens is mostly sniper fire. You should should you should keep your head down most most of the time. But also, there's a novelty of this war, you know, um, like small drones. Some, sometimes in commercial drones, you can buy it in shops. So they simply put a grenade or small bombs on it. So they simply send these cheap, uh, cheap aerial vehicles, uh, non-manned aerial vehicles, so they could simply drop a bomb. So I, was, I witnessed this many times. So that's mostly for the daylight. And what, what are they still using mortars? Um, last time I was there, it was just constant mortar rounds. Is that still a thing? Yeah. You know, they they will prescribe us this Minsk ceasefire, the law, um, heavy artillery, anything that is more than one hundred millimeter, millimeter in caliber. But yes, this is what happens. You know, uh, from the enemy side, they mostly use this heavy weapons uh, mortars. For instance, I saw just scores of uh, impact holes, fresh fresh impact holes. Um, I can't. I can't even remember how many times I uh, I had to seek cover uh, from mortar fire. But sometimes, you know, what happens is that many uh, Ukrainian units they also take initiative. So they, in some sort of ways, they defy these rules of ceasefire. So they return fire with uh, their own mortars that they mm. keep uh, as close as possible. For instance, uh, once I got deployed with Azov uh, Azov Regiment, you know, the uh, notorious group. Uh, but yeah. yeah, but you know them being Azov, they prefer to play aggressively. Like uh, they do not, they defy many military rules of engagement. Let's um, say, for instance, do not uh, do not engage first, do not attack, uh, stay clear, uh, avoid fighting. So what they do is normally they play aggressively. For instance, if they see. Um, they observe the enemy if they see the slightest movements, the slightest attempts to uh, to enhance their uh, earthworks or defenses. So they simply fire. They open fire. They start the crossfire, and then they uh, they they kill the enemy with them with mortars. So it in many ways it's all on on the discretion of the unit that stands on the particular ground. But at the same time, many military units from the army, I mean, uh, not, the, from, not from the National Guard, but from the army. So they keep the ground, for instance, the legendary Pramzona, which is the industrial ground, it's a ruined industrial complex just south of the city of Divka. It's the iconic place for any 
uh, for any military or um, defense journalists. So they keep probably the most important ground, uh, one of the most important hotspots of this war. And what Troop says is that is saying is that uh, we got the order just to stand clear and uh, do not seek any trouble. So this is what we do. No fighting, so we're not looking for trouble. So we simply stand firm, and uh, that's what we do. They they do not prefer, uh, they do not prefer to you know to engage to show initiative. So yes, it it depends a lot on uh, on the unit and the particular spot. Sure, sure. I don't think a lot has changed. I don't think I've been to the front line since well for about three years now. And it doesn't sound like anything has changed, you know, it's really depressing, actually. Yes, it's it's one of the most depressing thing is that while these people, you know, our guys and, and, and our men and women, they hold in the ground. And meanwhile, you know, it's all about politicians right now. It's yeah. all about their choice. And, you know, they. it's like, it feels like, you know, this whole front line, uh, which is, by the way, almost as long as the uh, East, uh, Western Front of World War One. It's Jesus. pretty close. Yeah, yeah. I was surprised to realize that yeah. it's pretty, pretty close in terms of its length. So it feels like a, like a different world. You know, it's, it's it's so isolated in terms of troubles, in terms of news, in, in terms of uh, what bothers usual soldiers. For instance, I came to the front line, got deployed um, with a fighting unit during the COVID outrage, the, the probably the worst days. <laughs> And they cared so little about this. They were asking me, what's the trouble about this? We heard some news on, on the radio. What's the trouble in this? We don't care because we have we have our world here. It's like a different planet. And, you know, it, when I got, got back there, it always feels like, you know, the war on the ground, the hot war, the fighting war is over. What's, what decides this whole ordeal with Donbass is the diplomatic war, what happens, you know, in the upper, in the upper layers. And it, it always hurts to realize that pretty much these people uh, in uniforms, they, they are not to decide to have their final say in this war. So it's all now politicians, unfortunately, and, uh, and diplomatic uh, level um, chances are not good for us, unfortunately. Yeah, um, and what is what is the political stance right now? Because obviously, this so-called longest ceasefire has been pretty much a failure. You know, there's more than one soldier dying a month for a whole year. That doesn't sound like a ceasefire to me. I think by anybody's standard, that's a failure. What is the government response to that? Well, what they have chosen the strategy of, uh, you know, having a bad ceasefire is better than having a good war, full-fledged war. Uh, this was embraced by the Zelensky administration, but government, especially when it comes to the earliest months of the ceasefires, like uh, second half of uh, the last year. So this is what we are saying. We have lost like only four soldiers um, over these months, instead of like something like 25 soldiers, which is a normal base of this war, normal death toll. But and they still keep, uh, you know, promoting this ceasefire, uh, gaining political uh, points for this ceasefire, just because you know they present this as the better alternative to not having any sort of ceasefire. But of course, Ukrainian public media—they are not quite happy. They are not satisfied with this explanation. But we still 
we still lost, we still lose more than uh, 40 soldiers amongst, and most of them, you know, most of these casualties, fatalities, they are, uh, we sustain them not in, in actual battle, not in actual uh, fire exchanges or operations. It's all about sniper fire or mortar fire shelling. In many ways, just because our defenses, our ground works are so fragile, so weak because, you know, because of corruption, because of poor financing. You know, it's always, uh, it's not always, but sometimes it is the case, it's not a surprising thing, is that when uh, when a mortar shell hits hits a dugout and kills absolutely everyone inside, for instance, it's the normal case. For instance, two soldiers uh, seeking cover in the dugout, so we have a direct impact, everyone is inside is smashed. Just because the um, after seven years of war in an immense defense budget, we still have our, have our defenses uh, weak and fragile. And this claims like 90% of, of, of fighting. Another thing is sniper fire. So they fail to provide our troops with counter sniper measures, counter sniper instruments. Um, so this is what hurts, really hurts. It's just about, you know, our soldiers in many ways, they, they're forced to embrace this feeling of uh, um, just standing across hairs. It's always the soldiers that, that end up, you know, bearing the brunt of it. I've, I, I remember even being in Kiev, though. It's like even public opinion was unusual. It was almost as if people in Kiev had forgotten the war in the East. Do you think that's still the same or what? That, that, that's still the same. Uh, yeah. Anyways, this is not an unusual situation. This is what, what continues since the active phase of war ended. It's like... 2015, maybe it's it's a normal situation for the last five six years. You know, Donbass war. You know, I'm from Donbass originally. I'm a local guy mm. uh, in Donbass, and you know, uh, many people call in media they call it uh, like a quarantine or isolated war because as you after you do, you drive uh, something like 15 20 minutes uh, from the front line, you will see no no signs of any war at all at all. So it's, it, it is really concentrated in some pretty tiny, uh, pretty tiny area uh, along this line, the separation line. So, and beyond that, no signs of war at all, even for the locals. Um, I grew up and lived uh, uh, for most of my life in, in the city of Alnavaja, which is like 15, 20 kilometers um, west to the front line. So if you come to my in, uh, my hometown, you would see no signs of war at all. It's just the usual life. Same, same goes about um, these cities uh, beyond the front line on the, in the occupied territory. So it's really restricted. It's really concentrated. And beyond this immediate war zone, uh, so you'll get no signs of war at all. So that's why, obviously, uh, this affects uh, media space, uh, the news from this war. Um, also, this lack of dynamics, this lack of um, sharp news or breaking news from this war. Of course, you know, people tend to ignore troubles, ignore that something that um, upsets them. Uh, people tend to look forward more to a more positive and a normal life. So war has long ago become a matter of, uh, of a handful of people concerned about this. 
journalists, activists, volunteers, uh, military activists. Um, so this is how it, how it looks. I, I, I'm almost sure that in any other country in the same situation, we would have seen the pretty, pretty similar public opinion about this. Yeah, yeah. No, I think you're probably right. People are generally docile, especially in my country. No one cares about anything the government does. I mean, they, they make a noise for a minute and that's it, you know. You know, many people in media in Ukraine, they, uh, they're bitching about this. They are really annoyed about this, that the world doesn't care, uh, that we do not have many journalists covering this conflict, only in some sharp moments like we had uh, during this Russian military buildup and uh, like um, New York Times came here um, and uh, had, had stories. But on the other side, I clearly understand that we have nothing to write about. And, you know, mm-hmm. we, are pretty, we are pretty egocentric, uh, if you allow me. So we want attention, but we really miss this uh, understanding of that we are not alone in this world. Uh, for instance, uh, when I come to NATO headquarters, uh, I see uh, NATO Secretary General and also Defense Ministers from all across Europe uh, discussing Afghanistan, Syria, Mediterranean um, Sea, and I keep trying to get a question on Ukraine all the time, every, every time I get deployed for some uh, for something into Brussels. So uh, the Ukrainian team, uh, like a journalistic group, they always encourage me to get a get through and get a question to Ukraine, on Ukraine to Stoltenberg. So, but sometimes just we need to understand that we're not alone in this world and the world is full of trouble so yeah i i hear you but still it's it's turning into like a forever war you know the only like ongoing active conflict in europe and it's i don't know people have forgotten about it but again like you said like obviously i'm a a reporter i cover conflict so in my head it's a very big deal but others don't think so um you mentioned the the russian military build-up there that happened earlier this year it was looking very bad for a minute everyone was kind of worried like oh my god are they going to launch an offensive what happened with that? What was going on? Oh, that was a weird story. Yeah, it happened in late March, um, early April. To be honest, uh, this was the first time when even I was a bit of scared. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. we had such a apocalyptic atmosphere uh, in Kiev to the point that uh, you know Kiev city authorities they started releasing maps of. Um, uh, air bomb shelters. Wow, okay. Yeah, I had a spot story about this. And this was a bit frightening. To the point, you know, uh, even military journalists um, focused on defense, they started asking me and the other other people questions like, what do you think about this? So I'm not even talking about more usual people reading news every day. So the atmosphere in Kiev, especially when it comes to media, you know, this media environment was pretty doomsday. Or the pretty, we were waiting for this. Uh, even at, at some point, uh, I tried to persuade myself that this is not going to happen. I mean, this is so insane. It, that it's too insane even for Russians, even this situation. But um, yeah, I was pretty ready for, for this war. 
even though uh, I realized my feeling was that they are bluffing because of many reasons. Um, but what I used to say to my fellow journalists, my, also my friends, is that, you know, we should not expect any, any like major war, but we also should uh, have some space for simple stupidity, you know, simple stupidity of uh, dictators like Putin. So, thanks God, uh, there was no major war, but still, uh, you know, as our, our intelligence says and you know, Western intelligence says, they have not uh, withdrawn all, all their troops from Ukraine. So, the concentration of troops still still pretty, pretty intense. So, so, they sent hundreds of troops to the border, right? Maybe just explain what was going on. What, what were they actually doing that had everybody so worried? Well, you know, the, what, what was worrying is that... Uh, it all started like really quickly and rapidly and suddenly. Um, mm. Most of the people who do not follow the uh, the schedule of Russian military drills, and it was so. The yes, they according to intelligence, they concentrated at least one one hundred thousand troops uh, uh, in Ukrainian territory within Ukrainian territory. I mean, the occupied Crimea and also Donbass and also um, around eastern Ukraine. You know, the, the, I had two problems about this, is that um, um, on one hand, we always knew the, you know, the, um, where the major, major Russian bases are, for instance, Voronezh Oblast and also Rostov, you know, the biggest concentration of their regular troops, so there was nothing surprising about this, but that's only two handful of people who follow, you know, Russian military buildup. But also, you know, this uh, what was worrying is that they started bringing troops from um, military district other than uh, western district. It's like central district. They had the 58th army uh, deployed into Voronezh. So that was pretty weird. And they also had this uh, battlefield um, um, medical facilities. It's like um, something that they would, they would deploy during actual uh, live fire operations. But on the other side, you know, it was so in your face, so demonstrative, so aggressive, so supported by really aggressive rhetorics on the highest level in the Kremlin. So I saw this as the um, as a real military buildup that it was hugely enhanced. Its effect was hugely enhanced by enhanced by media and also by this fear spreading fear-mongering, uh, and also the aggressive rhetorics from the Kremlin. But what was comforting is that, um, you know, this whole build-up, this whole maneuver was so in your face, so, and also they lacked strategic maneuvers. So this was, was, was comforting. So they gave many of us this feeling of, uh, of uh, that is nothing but bluff, political bluff. What do you think they were doing then? Do you think Russia were going to attack and then something just persuaded them not to and they thought, nah, next time? Or do you think this was just a bluff to scare Ukrainians? And if so, why? I, I, I do think that's bluff, but it's all because, you know, many reasons. I mean, yes, they are keen to, they're keen to stupid things, uh, but I see no real point in invading Ukraine. It's not even possible for them, I believe. Uh, from the very beginning, that was a political political bluff um, before the West, before uh, 
um, before Ukrainian leadership that get out of control in many ways. I believe they had a lot of hope on uh, on Zelensky administration to be more flexible, to be more um, keen to control, to be um, more possible to negotiate with in terms of uh, Ukraine. But you know, Zelensky administration turned out to be not so not as easy as Putin believed it to be. So that was a big bluff. And also, you know, in many ways, that was the um, gain for uh, internal Russian audience. So Putin is losing his popularity in Russia. So in many ways, he needs to sustain his leader of uh, a wartime, uh, mm. of a wartime president, this image of wartime president inside the, you know, uh, inside the surrendered, uh, surrounded, uh, inside the surrounded fortress with Russia. You know, it plays a lot on the Russian audience, uh, internal Russian audience. Uh, and also the, he feels comfortable, he and his, uh, his circles, they, they feel comfortable in this, you know, wartime warmongering atmosphere. So, yes, but, but I believe right from the very start, this was a political, more, more of a political game, but also a bit of a, a serious warning to Iranian leadership that they need to uh, to move towards any some sort of a deal on Donbass, on many mm. other ways, Ukrainian future uh, with the West, with NATO. So yes, turns out um, there was no war, but more of a political political stuff in this. Yeah, in England we would say it's kind of crass, but we'd say like it's dick swinging. You know what I mean? It's kind of Putin saying, "Hey, like I can do it." You know, like a warning. You know what I mean? Yes, but you know, if we simply look at it with the you know with the cold heads, you know, we had a story. We consulted military uh, strategists and also people who uh, used to be like high-ranking generals who with good military education. So they they had three suggestions where Russians could strike like in three directions uh, of the main strike is that from the south, it's Odessa, uh, Crimea, from north uh, to Kiev, and also from the east, it's Donbass, and then uh, Kharkiv, then Dnipro, and uh, so so that they could um, uh, surround the uh, Ukrainian military group in, in eastern Ukraine, which is strongest. So they simply could destroy Ukrainian military, I mean, the armed forces at, uh, as, as a whole in just one big single operation. But what what's next? I mean, the occupation of a, such a populated and such a big country, I don't think it's it worth the uh, ultimate goal. And uh, population is not is not friendly. So it was, you know, the Iraq war says a lot about this. So yeah, they could destroy Ukrainian military, but then what's next? I think, and many people in Ukraine and beyond Ukraine will also consulted with um, foreign specialists. Many people think that um, they would simply stick in a war that they cannot win. Things are very different now, you know, like the military is very well experienced now. They're well trained now. It's not the same as uh, when they first invaded, you know what I mean? Yeah, that's definitely not 2014. You know, we have our problems with the standing army, the Serbian uh, mm. military right now, but we also have a lot of uh, motivated and angry and experienced uh, combat veterans uh, in civilian life. And believe me, they will be ready to take up the arms and fight. And they will be uh, they will be angry. 
in the, in the talkers hour, in the times of trouble, we Ukrainians, we have proved uh, our tendency to get this like a national, uh, national outbreak, national uh, rise, just like we had in 2014. We have in from the scratch, we have resurrected the military. We have uh, formed a lot of volunteer battalions without any outside help. So they were self-formed. There's just a usual initiative from usual civilians. Many of them did not even never never served in the military. So uh, I believe uh, a big military uh, invasion of of uh, Russia would would simply precipitate even greater uh, national rise, even more um, guerrilla, even more uh, volunteer battalions, uh, nationalistic forces, and not not necessarily so. They would have a lot of troubles, a lot of troubles here. So that's why I never believed that a possible invasion could justify any any goal in Russians. So what's the what's the point behind this? They already blocked our path to NATO. They have already blocked our path to West, and uh, uh, we do not have any successful reforms in terms of defense. So what's the point in uh, in invading this country? Yeah, no, I, I definitely hear what you're saying. I think it would be honestly a big mistake for them to do so, just, you know, having seen the situation play out. Um, good luck out there, man. Um, and thank you very much for doing this. Where can people find your work and find you on social media and all of that? That's pretty, you can find me anywhere, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, any messenger. So cool, and it's I-L-L-I-A-P-O-N-O-M-A-R-E-N-K-O. Yeah, same spelling, absolutely same spelling anywhere. Brilliant. Thank you very much, mate. Appreciate this. Thank you, thank you. That was Ilya Ponomarenko talking about the, well, yeah, another failed ceasefire in East Ukraine. Very depressing, but I think necessary to keep reporting on it uh, because everyone else seems to have kind of forgotten. Um, yeah. Ilya Ponomarenko, definitely check him out. Uh, if you like what we're doing here at Popular Front, please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash popularfront. There's loads of bonus episodes there. There are about two a month. I think we've got almost 100 bonus episodes now. So there's a lot of stuff there for you waiting. Um, also, you get our regular episodes early, access to the community discord, merchandise, um, discount codes, Narrated articles, uh, access to the uh, Too Cool for J School series, and we will be doing another docu. Well, I don't want to say documentary series. We're going to be doing a series soon, coming to the Patreon, which will basically be um, kind of looking into some of the world's most obscure militant groups. It'd be kind of a graph graphic led thing, um, but yeah, that'll be coming to the Patreon. Patreon.com slash popular front thank you very much to our sponsors on this episode uh they are oracle coffee shop in portland oregon usa an independent coffee business selling only fair trade products see them at 3875 southwest bond avenue 97239 be sure to tell them popular front sent you um thank you to grind core house a pair of independent coffee shops in philadelphia usa one in south one in west Find them on socials at Grindcore House. Episodes also sponsored by Propagandopolis, an outlet selling and writing about historical conflict propaganda from around the world. Buy prints at propagandopolis.com. Use the promo code popularfront10 for 10% off. 
and check out the uh, limited run of popular front prints that are up there. Some of our um, photo work from uh, across various different conflict zones. Propagandopolis.com. If you want to follow us on social media, Twitter is at popularfrontco. Instagram uh, at popular.front. YouTube, uh, youtube.com slash popularfront. The website, popularfront.co. Merchandise, popularfront.shop. If you want to follow me anywhere, it's at Jake underscore Hanrahan. H-A-N-R-A-H-A-N. Same as my website, jakehanrahan.com. You can get in touch uh, that way. Uh, music in this episode, the intro was by Home and the outro was by Sam Black. Thank you very much to our high tier Patreons. They are Elise Middlefer, Jess, David McManus, Joachim Williamson Holt, Yode Travis, Tom Petrie, James Leons, Kate Ellen, Dan Ross, Thumper, Lisa Milgram, Bradley Davies, uh, Brendan Crave, Peter Hesher, RX, A. Nicole, Travis Lieberman, Cherry, Ben Marshall, Dallas Dunn, LD50 Seattle, MJ, Meredith Waters, Adam H, Larson8669, Carante, Bjorn Kirsten, Diamondstein, Jacob, Michael O'Connor, Zach Picard, Tom, Todd Cravens, Alexander, Nicholas Butter, Ron Swanson, JD, Jav, Ian Froes, James Cully, Tynan Daly, Ethan, Fitz Madrid, Ed Coulthard, Clayton Taylor, Mike Barone, Ben, Liam Williams, Chris Cusimano, Degenerate Zero Alpha, Giorgio Arani, DR, Trey Nance, Amy R, Rubicon, uh, Frank Austin, Amelia Mee, Noah Ease, Christina Rovetti, Freya Northman, Ali Hunter, Moody Al Rashid, Bill Wilson, Andrew Hurley, Vida Provost, uh, Brian McLaughlin, Tom Lochrin, Young Wasabi, Tony Bin, Adam Bergsnyder, JL, Anthony Kabarak, Dan Dunham, Fletcher, Chad Walker, Diana Gorvanek, Lawrence Abrahams, Peter McCormick from What Bitcoin Did, Axel Iverson, Christopher Martin, Ryan Sandercock and Moritz Zumbul. Thank you all very much. If you want to support us, go to patreon.com slash popularfront or popularfront.co slash support. <laughs>